0: Hello and welcome back to another episode of Sharp Tech. I'm Andrew Sharp and on the other line, Ben Thompson. Ben, how you doing? I'm doing okay.
1: Doing okay. Finally back on the home mic. It's a good feeling. Uh, I'm sure my with the timbre of my voice is excellent right now. Uh, kids are still not in school, which is kind of a pain. It's very difficult to be productive with people around. Um, give me the hermit lifestyle. Uh, but other than that, I'm doing well.
0: (laughs) I mean, can you let people know exactly what you're dealing with? It seems like, uh, it's absolutely ridiculous. It's an interminable winter break. Yeah. So, so we're in
1: Taiwan, right? Taiwan does not have Christmas there. I mean, there's Christmas, but there's no like days off or anything along those lines. Uh, but the kids go to the, you know, international American school. And so they have two weeks Christmas break. But then there's Chinese New Year, which is when usually the local kids have like three weeks off of school. Traditionally, they'd have one week off at the international school. And this year, Chinese New Year is very early. It's actually this weekend. And so instead of having like coming back for like one week of school, they're just like, okay, we're going to have a five-week break. (laughs) (laughs) Which sucks for all kinds of reasons, including the fact that the the year is going to go further into the summer than usual. But it really stinks because some of us have to actually work. So, yeah, last week I was still traveling. I I took the kids to go uh, hit the slopes. And I still had – I was stuck in a hotel room doing work, doing podcasting. (laughs) But uh, you helped me out by bailing on the first one of the week. So today is is supposedly – well, it is. It's a national holiday. It would be a day off. But we are here producing a podcast because – Rewarding our loyalists.
0: Here we are. It's great to be here as we trudge through the five-week winter break it's that you're brutal. dealing with. Kids, kids on there. break is
1: just terrible for productivity. It's it's awful.
0: I can imagine. I've not had that problem yet, but it's coming uh, sooner than I can even. <laughs> guess um but uh, for now we'll start with a company that you and i have never really discussed in depth on sharp tech somehow for the first couple months we never really had like a good amazon conversation
1: yeah i've been feeling so Sharp techery too i've like, they've been like david on my list to write about for ages so yeah we'll get there in podcast form
0: And it's an interesting time. So I'm going to start with a note we got from Max back in the fall that we never addressed on this show. He says, what is going on at Amazon? It feels like they've made some significant blunders since Jeff Bezos' vaunted return during the pandemic. For example, the pivot to purchasing fulfillment centers instead of renting them, missing that the COVID-driven changes in consumer patterns were temporary, And the big losses from Alexa, are these only significant because macroeconomic conditions are exposing mistakes that can't be covered by a booming market? Or is there something else going on with their decision making? And I'll just give you a couple additional facts here. Amazon stock is down 40% from where it was a year ago. And then in November 2022, the New York Times reported that Amazon planned to lay off 10,000 employees. And shortly after the new year, Andy Jassy wrote in a memo to employees that the company will actually be laying off about 18,000 employees uh, starting this week, I believe. So um, I'll let you focus on whatever aspect of the business is most interesting. But what do you think of all this?
1: There's a bunch of interesting threads here. I was certainly wrong about the assumptions around consumer behavior. Uh, you know, the you see this trend of sort of e-commerce becoming an ever larger part of, of sort of the economy and then COVID obviously increased it. But the thinking, and I absolutely articulated this, is well, it's just pulling forward stuff that's going to happen. I actually thought I, I I thought I was being quite conservative, where I was saying a lot of this COVID changes is temporary. Like once it's over, things are going to sort of snap back. That's general, you know. And it's interesting because in some respects, some of the remote work has stuck more than than the commerce stuff. Whereas the commerce stuff, it's like, well, it was going to happen anyway, right? If you follow the trend line in five to ten years we would have been at the same level that covid accelerated to and so my assumption was that well we'll just sort of stay at that level maybe it'll plateau a bit but what's mm-hmm. actually happened is there was this big spike in e-commerce and then it sort of plummeted back down to the trend line and that i was i for one was definitely wrong about that and everyone else was pretty wrong about that right uh, shopify's talking about being wrong about that stripe's talking about being wrong about that amazon's talking about being wrong about that i think everyone in the tech industry was wrong about that and uh to whatever extent I, I bear responsibility for helping propagate that uh, i ap- <laughs> apologize to the stockholders of the tech industry um but no that, that, thank you that,
0: for the accountability no, I, I don't i think that that's giving myself
1: a <laughs> little too much credit but i for sure i was completely completely wrong about that um and so that's i think the overarching issue because this leads to a lot of knock on effects particularly for a company like Amazon, where their biggest point of differentiation is in their sort of logistics network, and so mm-hmm. to sustain that level of sort of e-commerce, they invested a whole bunch of money, and that's like money you don't sort of get back. Like you, you put that money in upfront with the assumption you're going to reap the gains of it over time. If those gains don't come, you're still carrying those costs, and some of that is marginal costs, like like in an increased employee base, like they talked about you know, a year ago that they were basically drastically overemployed relative to sort of what they needed. Like they were at like holiday levels, but it was like March. And right. so it, 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 that's something that you can obviously trim down. Now, I think these layoffs are more about sort of headquarter layoffs, but there's still major sort of like physical stuff that you're invested in. And, and there's been news about this. Like there's, renting out like warehouse space stuff like that like so that they're and that's the harder cost to get rid of we've talked about this dynamic in the context of like the chip industry where when you make these big upfront costs it's like a guillotine over your neck in a way if you don't grow into it and i think that's a big part of what has impacted amazon and that's both a macro thing and a sort of like big picture mistake and Amazon was sort of hardly alone in in making this mistake, but it doesn't change the fact it was a mistake all the same.
0: And so just to confirm, basically what Amazon did was misread the early part of the pandemic when consumer demand was out of control and they sunk a bunch of money into their retail infrastructure and... Consumer demand has fallen off right as things like transportation and also just consumer goods have inflated in cost, and so the business, at least as far as retail is concerned, is much cooler than they expected it to be to justify all that investment.
1: I think, in broad strokes, the, the yeah, I, I think that I think that's correct. Now, I do think there are some mistakes that Amazon made in particular, and some of these are are there there was a and this i think some of them actually predate the pandemic um there was an article i wrote in september 2019 called day 2 to one day and you know there was this period i think in the you know 2015 to 2019 era where amazon really started acting like a mature company with market power where mm-hmm. they were squeezing their suppliers and they were trying to ring like every, you know, they sort of lost their low cost advantage. They really shifted to look. you go to Amazon because it's it's reliable and you get it in two days and you just it's your default search. And, yep. you know, you could if you wanted to find it, it cheaper somewhere else, you could. But did you really want to risk it? Right. It's kind of well, you know, and- you know, it's
0: going to show up. Their fulfillment is such an advantage in the marketplace. Like if I have to wait an extra three to four business days to get something that's $2 cheaper somewhere else, I'm not going to wait. I'm just going to get it at Amazon. And so I'm surprised they haven't taken advantage of it more than they have to this point.
1: Well, I mean, I agree. I think that it was very rational sort of just start searching on Amazon. But you also had other stuff going on like their big push in advertising. And like when you search for stuff, it was like, you know, it it just, everything's an ad, you you know, Mm -hmm. it was certainly going on. You also had Amazon's choice. Yeah. Yeah. You had the real reach into, well, Amazon's choice, I think is some sort of algorithmically addressed label. I don't think that's necessarily an ad, but if you do a search result, a whole bunch of stuff are ads. Like it's stuff that, that like people have to pay to get their stuff up there. And uh, you know, that's certainly been a beneficiary uh, of things like ATT. Like if you're a, small business selling some sort of item, you used to be on Shopify and you find people with Facebook ads. Well, if that's no longer a viable channel, you have to push it up in sort of Amazon search results. And Amazon has been a mm-hmm. real, a real beneficiary of that. But then also there was, you know, there's, there's been things like they really pushed into making it super easy for like Chinese sellers on Amazon. And, and on one hand that got them a whole bunch of stuff that, at just basically anything you can imagine at low prices. It also, you know, led to issues of like, are you know, there counterfeits are there things that are actually reliable, which I think has, has been, you know, at least, you know, one can imagine that being problematic for how much you rely on Amazon. But this article day two to one day, Jeff Bezos, this is actually when he really came back. Like he kind of came back a couple of times. It's been kind of a weird, weird sort of trajectory with Jeff uh-huh. Bezos. And, uh, for, um, and, He's like, no, we're coming back. We're reinvesting. We're going to get to one day delivery for everyone. Like screw this two day stuff. We're like, we're, we're really doubling down and reinvesting. And it was framed in this context of, you know, he always writes in his shareholder, you know, annual sh- shareholder letter, or he did, but, you know, he was still CEO, that, like, we're a day one company, right? uh You know, we're not a day two company. Day one companies are always inventing. They're doing new things. They're, you know, they're, they're experimenting. Day two companies are just laying back and, and, and sort of garnishing the results. And I kind of reflect on this on a personal level. There's an aspect where... I think I've made this point on Sharp Tech before in a joking way, but I actually believe it quite seriously. Okay. When you're young, you're like, I'm never going to be an old person like that person over there. Oh, how lame is that, right? I'm going to be you know young and <laughs> spry and Hungry. do new things and, and live in new places and XYZ, and I'm not going to be like an old boomer or whatever it is. And as you get older, uh, there is some aspect of actually the people that are my age and still trying to act young, are kind of (laughs) lame. And there's a bit where embracing who you are and moving through the stages of life, I think is a sort of healthy approach in general. And you could make the case that this sort of applies to Amazon, right? This is not a young company anymore. It's a 25 year old company or whatever it might be, or 26 year old, or no, I actually might be 30 years old coming up on a next year, I think. And you know what? Like they have an established position. They have an established sort of logistics network. Investors have been trusting them for three decades with the assumption that all this investment is going to pay off in the long run. And maybe there's a point where the natural state for Amazon is to just be like your default go-to store for everything on the web, the everything store, and to be reliable and deliver on that. And you you've got the sense from Jeff Bezos coming back. I mean, I praised in this article, but sort of in retrospect, a few years on it's like, I mean, Jeff Bezos personally seems to be trying to be a young person. Is he trying to push Amazon to sort of be a young (laughs) person at the
0: same time? He's a really great example of the phenomenon in the wild. Yeah. I learned that lesson when I was like 25 years old, I went out with some friends in Manhattan beach and we were at like kind of a hip bar or whatever. And there was like a, 55 year old guy in there hitting on a bunch of like 25 year old women. And he just looked kind of like leathery and sad in that setting. And it seared into my memory because I remember thinking at 25, I'm like, never want to be that guy. You don't want to be the old guy in the club or the bar, just trying to mix in with people who are like several generations younger. Um And Jeff Bezos does seem to be living that life. Um, well, but there's
1: an aspect of Amazon there. Like, like, at what point is it actually appropriate to sort of settle down and be the
0: company you've built? Well, and l- let me ask you, like, has their core business, the retail business, do we know whether it's ever been profitable? Yeah. I mean, so Amazon's
1: very, very interesting because – and I might be totally wrong on this point because Amazon has proven – the sort of the conventional wrong on this, a lot of points where, where, so Amazon starts out, they have the book business, right? And books make, why did they do books? Not because Jeff Bezos particularly in books, but because books were a perfect match for what the internet made possible. With right. books, there was an inf- basically an infinite supply, but no store, no physical store could carry that infinite supply. Amazon though, by virtue of being on the internet, could have infinite shelf space, right? They could carry all the books in the world. Now it might take you a while to get the book, but, but that was a way to get it. They also could reach everywhere, right? You could be in Backwoods, Wyoming, and yeah, it might mm-hmm. take you like two weeks, but you were going to get that book in a way that you would have to drive forever to, to sort sort of get it. And so there was all these, and books were a noble thing. There was a there was an entire catalog of every book in the world, so you could list them all. And like, <laughs> and there was only a few suppliers, relatively speaking. So you could even as a small startup, you could build the right connections, you could get access to everything you needed to. Books were perfectly suited to the internet. They were better sold on the internet than they were in physical stores. So that's why he started with books. Then. They built books, and then they moved, and then they moved into CDs, which had the same sort of dynamics, and things like DVDs that had the similar dynamics, and these were exceptionally profitable. Now, they, over time, because you you build up the scale, and you, then you're selling them, at, you're getting your, your your scale dynamics as you build out your infrastructure. And what they would do is, and they would keep investing into new areas using the cash flow from the established businesses. Now. They did some really smart things along the way, like for example, books were obviously threatened by eBooks. Well, what they did, they just dominated eBooks, right? And so they they sort of mm-hmm. took over that area. And the problem is, the further down you went into into goods, like when you start selling like TVs and stuff like that the logistics start to get really expensive and the margins aren't necessarily great. And so the relative margin went down as you went. But by and large, the way to think about Amazon is not as one business. It's at a whole entire collection of businesses under one roof. And they funnel the profits from very profitable divisions like books back in the day into other divisions to build up new ones. And it's a brilliant model. And like So Amazon is like the opposite of Apple. Like Apple is this super integrated, everything is like funnels into one sort of product vision and that product has to be sold at a huge profit to sort of pay for it all. Amazon is like, a whole collection of independent businesses, and then management at the top is funneling money from profitable ones to new ones. And it's sort of like this perpetual motion engine of building sort of new businesses. And then undergirding it all over time has been the development of this logistics network that gives you sort of a sustainable advantage in every sort of area that you enter. And it's been a very brilliant sort of approach and brilliant strategy. So does Amazon make money? Isn't quite the right question. It's do they have divisions that are throwing off money? And then are they investing that? properly in new areas that could sort of drive growth in the long run now the real thing about amazon is that the home run the grand slam the whatever large sports analysis you want to use was aws where they built aws and theoretically and in pr it's like oh well we already built this infrastructure for our store let's sell to other people the truth is that the store that was the idea it took a long, long time for Amazon to store to actually move on to AWS. Like, there's this popular conception. Amazon builds all this capacity for the holidays. They don't need it the rest of the year. That makes no sense because people <laughs> who use AWS also need it during the holidays, right? No, AWS is sort of this separate thing, and it's this idea of just being primitives. It's like you, there's compute, there's storage, and you just buy these pieces, and
0: there's a very clean interface in theory, that you can sort of build on. And for people who don't know, a- AWS is Amazon Web Services, and they've made it really easy to host websites and basically undergird, like, large portions of the internet. Right, this
1: podcast this is 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 made possible by AWS, right? So passports built on AWS. Yeah. so and it's hugely profitable. It makes a ton of money, right? Like, it was it, one of the... I call it the AWS IPO when they first revealed their their finances it was like a bomb went off like the the um, like the fact they're making so much money out of cuz everyone assumed it was like going to be like super low margin and so aws actually makes a ton of money uh and a lot of that money is going into the retail store and building out these logistics and going into things like alexa which we should definitely get to uh so put put a mark in that mm-hmm. and so amazon as a whole isn't making a lot of money but there's definitely components that are making a ton and you have this reinvestment this we're not going to we're not going to be old we're going to jump back in you have covid that sort of doubles down on that it's like we must do this we have to sort of do it and and the economy is going to going to support us and then you have all this low interest rate sort of environment and then now suddenly people are looking at it like, well, where's the profits? Where's where's the actual like like we've been waiting around for thirty years here. I was
0: going to say it's been like twenty five years of that strategy where we're going to take our profits over here to grow over here, and in the long run it'll be worth it. And so like, when did they hit that point where okay, now this is the most dominant company on the planet?
1: Right. No, exactly. And I think I think that's probably the question that that a lot of investors are asking now. I do think there's a AWS is like the canonical example of why you should trust Amazon, right? Like it's just an unbelievable success that was ridiculously expensive and, you know, a real long shot, you know, at least in theory. They mm-hmm. did it. They delivered it. It's massively profitable. Uh, um, You know, if anything, you can understand why they tried to hide the finances for so long because it prompted <laughs> a huge response, you know, from Microsoft and, and sort of others. But the other piece here is I think kind of Alexa so Alexa and the whole that whole idea, and I wrote a piece, um, you know, about Alexa being like the operating system of the home, and this idea that the home is Amazon missed or not missed. They 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 like they tried to the enter smartphones. That was a ridiculous sort of endeavor. Did the they?
0: Fi- I, I must have missed that. Oh what, my! What God. year are we talking about there?
1: Uh, I think it was twenty fourteen or something like that. So they, uh, yeah, they made the Fire Phone. Uh, It was, like, Jeff Bezos' sort of, like, personal project. Uh, I'm very proud for calling that a terrible idea from day one. (laughs) And then I actually used one, and it's the worst phone
0: I've ever used in my
1: life. It's (laughs) really bad.
0: It should be a collector's item. I I wonder whether there's a resale market. Well,
1: a credit to Bezos is... He they cut it immediately and they just wrote it down and then they banned the market. Like, yeah, that was a terrible idea. It was <laughs> dumb to do, but at least they sort of cut their losses immediately. And then three months later they come out with the Echo speaker with Alexa. And this is on the heels of this massive failure. So everyone's dumping on Echo and Alexa. And uh I'm like, this is actually a pretty great idea because what made this different was the home's the one place where you don't necessarily have your phone with you all the time. You have to charge at some point. Right. And mm-hmm. the home's the one place where you don't feel like a moron for like talking to a speaker because you're just in your own house. Right. You're not, you're not sort of out and about. And I think the problem uh, is it was never super clear how this actually ties into making money. Right. Like like the, you know, you add stuff to your shopping list. Well, it's like when you're shopping and we talked about this a bit in the context of, of chat GPT versus Google, you kind of want to see a selection and you want to choose, right? Do you really trust like Alexa to get the right thing for you or whatever it might be? Sure. And then there's also, they've gotten to things like ring doorbells and there's lots of stuff for your, for your house, but there's a real question. Like what's the payoff here? Like what, how does this actually manifest into sort of making money at at the end point? And they've been spending a ton on Alexa, like billions and billions and billions of, of dollars a year. And I think there's a question
0: there about where's the payoff at the time. Do you think it was mostly just a hedge in terms of what the like touch points with customers might be 10 or 20 years down the line?
1: Yeah. And no one wants to be sort of shut out on the smartphone. I mean, again, Apple's given a perfect object lesson about why no one wants to be like under the heel of of whoever controls the touch point to the customer.
0: And I can understand where you would be in a conference room thinking, like, "All right, well, let's try to own the home and reach people that way." No,
1: totally. I, I think it's a great. I think it's a great idea. I think it's a great strategy. I've been fully supportive of it all along. I do think, though, it's one of those things where we're eight you know 8 9 years on and I'm sort of taking the skeptical investor perspective it's like what's the payoff here
0: well and also i would say that humans haven't adopted the technology the way a lot of people expected they would or hoped they would yeah i think and people mostly use challenge. it to play
1: music and uh, if you're really advanced use it to turn lights on lights on it, <laughs>
0: right exactly that's the extent of it which you know it, i've i've heard from my friend ben thompson that it can be really useful for those two activities but beyond that i'm not sure it's funny because this is, is actually the same
1: reason to raise questions, be skeptical about things like ChatGPT replacing Google, right? Like the – to what extent do we actually want answers and actions from a computer versus – conversations, yeah. Yeah, versus like options, right? And and we retain some sort of like uh, decision-making in, in sort of the process and – it, it it it's unknown, right? Is the issue that it's just not good enough, or is it actually fundamentally flawed as a model of as a model of computing? I, I I think that there's it's you think about how much the AI stuff has advanced just in the last few years, and that certainly lends credence to the idea. Look, it's just not good enough yet, but mm. you, but it remains an open question. So anyhow, I just like. Uh, but I think the bigger issue – I mean, so Alexa is definitely an open question. It's it, I've revisited it a couple of times. I, I do want to revisit it again. Uh, but I, I think the bigger issue is this overinvestment. I do think there's a question of should Amazon just be the big company, mature company that they are? Uh, right. You know, and the other thing – and I know people get really upset when I talk about this, but the vast majority of tech companies are dramatically overstaffed. Like, like this really – like – Facebook, you know, we talked about cutting like 10 or 11% of their workforce that brought them back to like the level of employment of like six months ago, right? Like, like Mm -hmm. the reality is, is they probably should have cut way more than that. Like what actually is advanced about Facebook business relative to 2019 or 2020 that they need four x the employees or whatever it might be. And this applies to companies all over, including Amazon. Uh, And I I think, and so I'm not surprised at this, this layoff sort of increase again, again, I don't. People get really upset about this and I can understand why, but it, it's just sort of like the reality. And I think, I think this year is going to be pretty rough. Like, like honestly, yes, there was a lot of layoffs last year. They probably weren't sufficient. And then right. ones that haven't done layoffs yet, it's probably coming. And that's just going to be a tough thing. And I think the the hope and what we've seen in past downturns is that actually ends up leading to more entrepreneurship and sort of more new companies and, um, you know, that certainly I hope that would be the case sort of going forward, but I do think it's going to be, it's going to be tough, not just for Amazon, but for a lot of companies over the next few months.
0: And it's eye opening for people who've been paying attention to the last 20 years when companies like Amazon have basically just dominated and like the, the success has compounded with each passing like five year window. And it's strange to see costs start to matter for them like brad stone he had a good article at bloomberg and he wrote about the sum of the cost over the last few years he said especially in the final years of bezos's tenure as chief executive officer frugality seemed to go out the window amazon spent big on everything from new offices in seattle and arlington virginia to hollywood productions parentheses, a $1 billion tab for more Lord of the Rings, which I said was ridiculous at the
1: time. I said it was ridiculous at the time, and then it was even more ridiculous once you watched it.
0: (laughs) And acquisitions, $8.5 billion for MGM, which no one thought was worth that much, Stone writes. The company also went on a wild spree of hiring employees and constructing warehouses, both to satisfy pandemic demand, but also to support that new one-day delivery promise to Prime members. And it's just interesting to see like costs matter for a company like amazon and like a new reality where they're sort of playing in the same game that everyone else is because for a long time companies like amazon and facebook and the rest of the big five they've all felt basically bulletproof relative to normal companies
1: yeah and and it's all relative like these are all you know amazon doesn't make much profit but i think they could um but particularly the other Big tech companies just—they still make tons of profit. The right. issue is that their sort of stock price was predicated on the assumption that the the, the growth and sort of profit would sort of continue indefinitely. And I think the and so the correction here, like the the, the relative prices compared to you know your typical quote unquote real world firm, are still much higher. It, it's all sort of relative to what they were. I think is is mm-hmm. is sort of sort of the thing. I mean, I don't think that. You know, I don't think that Amazon is doomed by any means. The question is, is it reasonable to sort of value them based on the assumption that this growth and dominance continues over the next 30 years? Uh, and they certainly were hiring at that. But I think the reality is the hiring was out of control. Like like you had the last few years, it was crazy. And I think it was bad for Silicon Valley. It was bad for tech because you had these large companies. It was becoming completely irrational to be an engineer and work for a startup. Because mm. like the, you know, you're never going to be competitive on a salary perspective. The idea is, well, you, there might be some sort of upside. But then even when the, when you actually calculate out that upside and then you had these startups raising at crazy valuations where it's like, are, like what's going to actually have to happen for us to grow into that valuation? And then you, you almost have like this hoarding of talent by these these large companies. And this hoarding, I think, was was a very bad thing. And I, I again, this is very easy for me to say, sitting in Taiwan, with sort of a a, a stable, a stable not income working for Amazon. Although yep. you know, the other people that get mad, like, hey, your your <laughs> your subscribers might be a tech place. I get it, but if I if I sugarcoated it because I was worried about that, then you shouldn't listen to me. Um, yeah, it wasn't great the last five to six years where you just had these big five companies hoovering up basically all the talent and paying them to not do what it wasn't super clear (laughs) and uh the optimistic take the silver lining is that there's actually now much more talent available to go into building new things and and it's happening in conjunction with this ai stuff so maybe that's actually a paradigm shifter that
0: makes new companies possible i i like that glass half full spin on things and maybe this is going to lead to more variety in the future i can see why people might look skeptically at that rationale and say look this that's a really rosy spin on like a downturn that's cutting like thousands and thousands of jobs across silicon valley but i'm going to choose to be the optimist and say this this is a, a healthy shakeup for everybody i i'll subscribe to what you're selling here i mean we've seen
1: this before right like the the years after the dot com crash were really really brutal and it's tough because on a micro level for all those individual people impacted it was life-changing in sort of a a negative way and it takes years to recover from that and you might be like sort of permanently behind so i don't want to minimize the damage that comes from this at the same time that's the era where all sort of like a whole bunch of the great companies grew up and were founded and built precisely because there was talent available there was like and, and there was no other option than than to build
0: And the past era that we've just lived through where all these companies are basically hiring people to keep them from working with potential competitors and just having them sort of sit around, like that's kind of a shitty place to be. And so if we can disperse the talent a little bit more than we have been, that's probably a good thing.
1: Yeah, like the VR world would be in a much better place if Facebook was very pressed for cost, like three years earlier and, and, mm. and could, like Facebook Great I think, feels like they're, they're in too deep now. So they might as well keep going, <laughs> but there's an aspect where, you know, if they had this sort of cost pressure and revenue pressure that they have now, do they ever make this bet? Right. And if they don't, then you have much more sort of, you probably have a whole bunch of startups in this space and people focusing on different things and building different pieces and you have much more experimentation and evolution. And yeah, a lot of those companies in that space will, will fail. Cause that's what happens with startups. But you would probably have a much stronger ecosystem and a and much more speed and moving in a particular direction. Uh, you know, if VR were being developed in the startup space, as as opposed to basically being the playground of of Apple and
0: Facebook. Right. Okay. So to take it back to Amazon at the end here, it, and the initial question from Max, it, this isn't something where you're like. Particularly concerned about Andy Jassy's decision making long term. This is like a, a sort of perfect storm of factors that have brought them to where they are right now. Yeah,
1: I mean, I, I have a like on some stuff. I think Jassy's been spot on, like closing like their retail stores and stuff like that. It's like, why are you embracing a model that your model is better than them and that's what
0: sort of, like, you're, <laughs> you're predicated on? You're displacing all that brick and mortar stuff. Yeah,
1: yeah. i I mean, I think the entertainment video stuff is definitely interesting I, I it certainly seems like that's something that jeff bezos cares about in particular and um and so i i don't know i mean like the you it's know it's really we talked odd to, yeah we talked a little bit about that before i mean just i can see the idea of wanting to own like basically own the cbs of the future right cbs nbc abc phenomenally profitable for years and years And is that going to be the case with streaming where there's a few services that matter and then you sell access to all sorts of other stuff? There is an aspect, and this is sort of like a long-running trope in Silicon Valley. You know, people Mm -hmm. make money in Silicon Valley and then spend it all in Hollywood trying to be cool. And there there is you know
0: again that identity crisis that Bezos has been experiencing the last ten years or so.
1: I mean, you know, you could raise same questions about Apple like the Apple TV plus honest you know, I mean, Apple has so much money it doesn't kind of doesn't really matter, but uh you know, it's like what's
0: what what are we doing here? Like what's the point? I would really be interested just to, to hear someone at Amazon explain what they think the point is because it's a little confusing to me. I've written about prime video like five times and
1: every time i was like i don't i i'm not sure i like you know amazon deserves so much benefit of the doubt but i'm like i i'm just i'm not sure i get it i'm not sure what's going on here i mean like the like for example like who does not have amazon prime that is going to get amazon prime like is there actually a meaningful shift and i don't know maybe maybe this is my sort of like you know relatively rich well-off sort of you know, I'm in Taiwan and I still have Amazon Prime. Uh, mm-hmm. In part because they do have benefits for international, but also when I'm in the states for two months, i more than pay, i more than pay for it, right? And so maybe I'm the wrong person to ask about this, but it's like I I don't know. Like, like there, no, there definitely
0: it, is what it's like is it, Prime is such a good product that. They have a bunch of lock in regardless of whether there's a video service. Like, I I, it seems like their theory is this is just another inducement that will keep people subscribing to Prime year after year after year. But the reality is, the core Prime business is so good that, like, they don't need to spend you know, however many billion dollars per year to secure Prime Video and keep me locked in over there. That's just like a weird perk that comes with their otherwise great business. And I think that's true for almost everybody who has prime. Yeah. I mean, I don't know
1: though. Like it, it, it's, it's I could very be hard Mark to, too, yeah. and because I think Amazon does have data, right? They, they know, and there is, you know, the Amazon prime bundle is really interesting because people look at it, it's like, it's like a grab bag of stuff. There's all this disparate stuff, but like sort of like for bundle theory, having a bunch of random stuff is actually great because it's like, these are anti-churn Good mechanisms. Point. Like if you're using, Amazon music, right? Like you're not gonna turn from Prime because like all your playlists and stuff are in there, whatever it might be. And and you know, video, so I mean the problem with video is it's just so expensive, right? It's like it feels like that's more expensive than all the other Amazon Prime benefits combined. Mm-hmm. I mean, like, I don't know, I'm just shooting off the street for the hip here. But again, it's one of those things where I've by default deferred to Amazon because they have data and I don't. And their track record has been so good. And maybe sort of the none of it, what's happening now is Amazon just losing a little bit of that benefit of the doubt. And that mm-hmm. maybe is more than anything what's what's happened over the last you know couple of years.
0: Yeah. Well, to your point on video, they do make really interesting choices with the shows they buy into. Because for every Lord of the Rings crazy billion-dollar investment, they also go hard after shows that appeal to like true normies like my parents will will watch like Bosch on amazon yeah like jack ryan or whatever it is (laughs) exactly yeah Yeah. and so it's it's interesting they're playing a different game than like apple tv
1: well by all accounts the lord of the rings things is really a basil's pet project he was jealous of game of thrones and he wanted his own game of thrones Mm. and it's fair to ask is jeff bezos additive or negative for Amazon sort of bottom line and, and, and for how long, if it's negative for how long has that been the case? I think that's a reasonable question to ask.
0: Interesting. Okay. Well, that's a a good place to end it on Amazon. Uh, If people have follow-ups, please email us and we can keep the conversation going. Um, All right. To keep it moving though, Ben, some follow-ups to our GPT conversation. Aaron says, if web three promises authenticity and uniqueness, and AI promises abundance and commoditized creation. What's the relationship between the two? Is it complementary where we could have blockchains verifying the provenance of media or will it be competitive? What do you think of this, Ben?
1: No, this is exactly why I haven't been outright dismissive of web3 and blockchains all along, right? The 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 entire what makes the internet and digital u- interesting and possible is that everything is infinitely replicable and that is good for abundance. But the fact, the, the possibility of introducing scarcity, getting all the benefits of digital, but it being scarce is really Mm -hmm. interesting. And you can see some real interesting and valid viewpoints or valid use cases for this. Uh, I think the challenge with web three is that's basically been the argument for Web3 has always been theoretical and like where are the actual products that that actually demonstrate this? And yes, we'll get responses of, oh, this is doing – yeah, they're proposing to XYZ, but where's the actual like take up and and use and, and questions along those lines? And to what extent is stuff going to be via blockchain versus just sort of like trusted companies or individuals, right? But but the the, the question of verification and reputation and knowing that something is what it says it is. Those are all real questions. They've been real questions on the internet for a long time. And the validity of that concern is only going to increase with with sort of this AI stuff. So, yeah, I absolutely do think they're complementary. Now, I've been consistent in saying the Web3 blockchain stuff is a feature. It's not – I mean – Okay, that's like what. There's a brief period I speculated. Is this sort of a new paradigm? That was, I think, not right. But I, I think I have been consistent from the, when I was first writing about it. Like, look, there is a need for verification and saying what something is. You know, there was, I don't know, like the there is a complementarity. I basically is what I would say in theory. I think okay. the issue is is seeing what emerges in practice, and a lot of this theoretical output was disguised by what is definitely scarce well money's scarce and so that became like a super obvious use case with everything
0: that goes with that including fraud and like all those other bits and pieces it's so hard as a normie you've seen it mentioned with crypto almost all the time i hear about web3 crypto is the next sentence um and it just feels like There have been so many buzzwords thrown around over the last couple of years. I almost want a new name for what people are envisioning here because Web3 just feels like a giant scam to me. And maybe I'm wrong there, but just based on like the way it's been messaged and packaged over the last several years, it just feels like sort of a house of cards that people are trying to sell without much there there.
1: Yeah, I, I think the big question too, like the sort of verification thing, right? Is there a like there are verification entities that 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 do offer verification? You'd see them in the in the financial sector, or it could be a bank. There's this thing called root certificates that basically undergird security on the web, and you know that your browser trusts a few sort of certificate providers, and then those mm-hmm. certificate providers issue certificates to like Stratechery, right? If you want to do a purchase or or to Amazon or whatever it might be. And at the end of the day, though, there is some sort of like trusted entity at the tail end of that. The idea with some of this Web three stuff is we can do away with the trusted entity entirely, and it's sort of like this sort of more sort of peer to peer sort of establishment. And is that even necessary? I think is is a fair question, particularly given the trade offs in in sort of performance and and accessibility that come with that. And I don't know. We'll see. I mean, I, I, it does feel even further off than, so, like, is AI going to be good, to be honest? Um, right. And, it, again, it was, it's very hard to distinguish this from the money-making use cases. I mean, I was talking to someone in crypto a couple years ago because I'm very interested in it for, like, a, like we have, like, Passport, right? Like, and like, is there a way to verify someone's membership? And I think this is where, actually, uh, NFTs are actually quite interesting, not in, as an artistic medium, but as a, this is basically a unique token if I have this token, I should be able to get access to different things by virtue of having that token, right? Mm-hmm. And the question is, you know, well, should that work because it's on a blockchain or because it's owned by unique entities? Like, well, how are you going to get like YouTube and Instagram and all these things to work together? They're not going to trust each other. Well, what if there is sort of like a blockchain there? And I, and this has always been very interesting to me. Like, like I think this idea is compelling. And, and the, what this person told me is like, look, The reality is everyone in crypto, they don't care unless they can make money from it. (laughs) And uh, that's (laughs) the only – that's the driving sort of factor. And I think the – if I were – this is sort of the glass half full podcast. If there's an optimistic take for crypto, it's at this massive decline in value, the the fraud, all this sort of stuff is actually really good because all these attempts to just make more money and need to be wiped out of the system, washed out. And folks that actually want to do product, you know, will then have room to emerge. But that's like an extreme version of the <laughs> look. There's going to be a ton of pain. Everyone, you're going to, people are going to lose tons of money or lose their life savings. But hey, now we can actually innovate. Um, and it sounds, you know, that sounds even harsher than I mean, like it is a bummer. Like I think crypto. I was back in wisconsin is like i you know just some like normie friends of mine like oh you're like into crypto i'm like i'm like oh this gives me a bad feeling like you have (laughs)
0: like i had a couple friends get really into crypto yeah Yeah. (laughs) didn't end well
1: no and but this was always the tension i felt writing about it is because i do think there is just and this is maybe my problem being an analyst i'm interested in theory right like the Mm -hmm. the idea of of scare digital scarcity is really, really interesting to me. And maybe being too interested in that theory meant I was insufficiently harsh on the reality. Uh and I think that's definitely a criticism I have of myself and and you know is probably one that can be levied broadly
0: yeah well and i look at this question and like the interplay between web 3 and ai all i know it, and it underscores the importance of product on the open ai side like i can look at chat gpt yep. and understand what it is where was
1: the killer where was the killer web 3 use case other than like making a bunch of money
0: for three years i've been seeing tweets about web 3 and sitting here being like what the fuck does this even mean like what is any of this and and it's all very esoteric and does make. sense sense to its adherence but growing beyond that is going to be a challenge and ai is further along i mean i think that's been made clear over the last uh couple months here um to keep it moving though ryan says on the last show you guys got a question regarding ai and the dominance of the english language On that front, I'm intrigued by the amazing improvements we've seen in recent years around real-time translations across a number of mediums, text-to-text, voice-to-text, and even voice-to-voice, along with neat initiatives like Meta's No Language Left Behind project. Is it possible that AI actually enables deeper cross-cultural integrations as real-time translations allow users to interact with any and all content? and potentially each other localized real-time in their native tongue. Perhaps this is just the techno-utopian dreamer in me. Love the show. I always listen on my fantastic AirPod Pros. Every week we get another listener who brings up how much they love their AirPod Pros. I just want to say thank you to everybody who writes in with their AirPod updates. You are slowly wearing me down sometime in the next year or two i will crack and get airpod pros um stockholm syndrome but what do you think of the the idea on the language side ben i mean
1: i certainly am very intimately aware of this i use translation constantly i have to you know deal with the, the i mean i could read chinese to an extent but it's a way easier to just uh translate and 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 and, and go from there um so yeah, and like on like what a, one very underrated, I think underappreciated improvement has been Apple's uh image recognition, image translation. So now you can just mm. sort of like uh, you know, particularly when there's screenshots passed around and it's like, oh, you just save it and and highlight it and translate it. It's amazing. Wow. Um so but there is an extent where what I'm doing is just making more of the web English to size from a practical <laughs> perspective, right? I I think yeah. like I think the the make it worse. We're not sociologists. We're just. You know, podcasters, but hey, that gives us free license, yeah, right? I think there's an gonna stop us. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> there's an aspect where this just cements the dominance of English as the medium of the internet, right? It makes it easier for people to get to English. I think, like, there's a. I just think the larger, the dominant player, the dominant sort of accrues over time as opposed to being right. diminished. But like, it, 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 I've talked about this in the context of. You know, like networks and things on those lines, right? Like if you had if, if you had network portability, everyone thinks about network portability as like being bad for Facebook because now you can get access to to you know you can move your network to another place and theoretically that's right. Or but that network portability falls in the opposite direction. Now Facebook can ingest your other networks, right, and can, mm. can sort of like pull things in, right? Uh, and if there was network portability between Twitter and Facebook, what's more likely that Twitter? builds a Facebook replacement or that Facebook builds a Twitter replacement, right? I I think like, like, (laughs) and so I think there's an aspect here where just being large and dominant uh, means you tend to absorb as opposed to the other direction. Now, if I really wanted to be philosophical and uh, contrarian, uh, is all this sort of like cross-cultural exchange actually good? I
0: think would be an interesting <laughs> that, that is a really good <laughs> question. Yes. So I loved the optimism from Ryan, the utopian dreaming. Um, and I also remember watching the meta keynote this year. There was a lot of VR stuff that I rolled my eyes through. But the No Language Left Behind project, which was like just a small piece of it, is crazy impressive like what they're able to translate in basically real time um is cool to imagine like a couple years down the line when it gets more advanced now it <laughs> again this is very amateur sociology yeah i think the lesson of the last 20 years which most people still haven't really connected the dots on is that being able to be connected to millions of people at any given moment is not a good thing for yeah. society. <laughs> and that's really, like, kind of led to some social fabric unraveling as opposed to being enhanced. And, well, um, no,
1: well, just like in fundamental things that I thought we all agreed on, right? It turns out it's a lot easier to support, like, free speech when you're not exposed to the speech of people you don't like and the means don't exist to control it, right? Suddenly on the yeah. internet, we see all this speech we don't like. And because it's the internet and there's choke points, it's like there's ways to leverage it. And boy, everyone sure seems to be competing to try to leverage it, right? And like that to me, that that's been a real wake up call, right? Like, like like how much it, it, you know, and it's kind of obvious if you back out of it. Like how much of the things that we actually care about are structural and systemic in nature, right? Are we pro free speech because we're pro free speech? Are we pro free speech because we. Uh, you know, we're not willing to make the onerous like you go back to like if you want to control free speech thirty years ago, you have to actually like go into people's homes and go on the streets and actually lock people up. And like, no, no, that's you know, especially in the abstract, there's no way I would ever support that, right? Suddenly online, it's like, well, uh, look at this. This is unbelievable. Can you <laughs> can you believe that people think this? Twitter, do something about it. And uh, and Twitter can they can kick people off? And is that a government no 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 what's not you know and now we fall back into these semantic arguments instead right. of like this this philosophical one it turns out our philosophy was not nearly as deep as we thought it was
0: yeah, but it's it's not even limited to america i mean there's been a, a rise of more kind of radical behavior all over the world for the last 20
1: years <laughs> the only with building community is that's not saying whether the community is good or bad, right? There's right. There, there's maybe value in having terrible viewpoints and being shunned by society. Now you go online, you can find a whole bunch of people that agree <laughs> with you. And you feel validated and you end up going deeper and deeper into, the, into these holes.
0: Yeah, well, and I don't mean to laugh because it's definitely been unsettling to watch over the last 5 to 10 years, but I I really hope that Ryan is right and that we do live in some utopian reality where we can all communicate instantaneously via AI.
1: The enthusiasm in your voice is giving it, is giving it
0: away. <laughs> well, no, it's like the no language left behind project is really cool. Would it actually be good to have everybody connected? Is a really good follow-up question. Um, um,
1: well, but it's going to happen. And I think, you know, th- there's an aspect of arguing about what what has or hasn't happened versus how do we figure out and manage this going forward. And, you know, that that's useful in this context, useful in, in all sorts of contexts, for sure. Okay.
0: Um, one life advice question toward the end here. Daniel says...
1: How do we want life advice questions? Everyone got mad at us about our dating app takes, which, by the was- way... We framed as these are two old married men on the porch <laughs> complaining. It wasn't it was meant to be tongue in cheek.
0: People took it way too seriously. Oh yeah. Well, um, that's you know, it's the internet as fine. It's the, <laughs> the, the world that we inhabit here. Um we should call this two old men in a mic or something like that. <laughs> I'm not as old as you. You keep trying to pull me into the old been here you told me earlier today to embrace being old i'm still young at heart young and vibrant you know
1: yeah i think you're pathetic no just kidding (laughs) young
0: Young and stupid
1: (laughs) Um, no not young old and trying to be young it's the worst uh,
0: yeah desperately (laughs) clinging to my youth um all right daniel says in several recent episodes you emphasize that the internet will primarily help people find communities Then people will share context within their communities or group chats. As someone who works in tech but lives in a smaller market, how would you recommend building out this community virtually? Are there specific forums or places to seek discussion around the overlap of technology and business? Or should I begin replying to tweets and sharing ideas and a community will naturally form? What do you think?
1: It, it's a good question, and I think it the inevitable follow-on question that is much harder to answer. Well, first off, I don't think the internet will primarily help. I think the internet optimistically will help sort of help. communities, right? This is the, you know, again, sort of to continue the theme, it's the glass half full view of the internet. I do have hope for this in part because of my personal experience, but this idea of, of how and where do you find community is, I think, a really pressing one for sure. I remember being in Taiwan When I first came and I like, I, you know, I would like to have more community and I'm like, I'm going to, I'm going to like really start posting in like this forum or whatever. Like, I think it was like the Ars Technica forums or something like back in the day Mm -hmm. and it just never, never really took it. It it sort of wasn't, wasn't my thing. And so it's a, it's a really interesting challenge. I think the first thing I would say though, and this is just, you know, Ben on his porch lecturing to people is. (laughs) you can't underestimate the importance of real life community and real life connections. And Mm -hmm. so, you know, the, the, this, you know, Daniel's in a smaller market, like, well, here's another thing. Here's the the way to put it. I think a mistake people make is they try to put everything into one pot. Uh, I can't remember. I'm sure I've relayed this to some podcasts. Sometimes whatever pieces of advice I've gotten, I tend to, you know, tell the story 5 million times, but I'll tell it again. When I was going to Taiwan, I got a piece of advice from from my manager and he's like, you know, Ben, I'm worried about you um, going back to Taiwan that, you know, you're not going to find like you're not going to have the community that sort of you need around you. And he's like, you're going to have to you have to like piece it, piece it together. And, And that was really insightful where. I have a community, and I wrote about this in uh, Social Networking 2.0, where I think I was actually able to achieve this. And I, I think this is maybe a leading edge of what will be good for people in the long run. I have a Bucks fan community in, like, my Twitter DMs, right? And we're all a bunch right. of maniacs, and we, and we talk about that. I have a community with a bunch of old, you know, bloggers and podcasters that's been together, like, 10 years. and And we mostly – got together because we all kind of do similar things or whatever and you know you know i can't remember the kind actually i think it got together because there was a weird stalking case around one of them and we were all trying to like like
0: figure out what to do about it stalking like someone was harassing somebody
1: yeah it was it was it was actually uh pretty very very quite dodgy at, at, at one point but, but that community's been on ongoing for like a decade um okay. and then There's what, like, there's different what, like, and then I have a community about, you know, I have a real life community here in Taiwan, primarily with expats that have been here for a long time. And, you know, that's where I, you know, my cigar smoking community or whatever it might be. Um, But basically, I don't look to my Taiwan community for Tech takes right. I actually mm-hmm. find it very interesting. I love talking to people who are not in tech about tech because I think it's really interesting. You get lots of different viewpoints. I have my friends from high school back in Madison that we never talk about tech ever, right? But they you know we have all this shared context. We talk about bachelor sure. highlights. We we post our wordles in there every day, right? Like there's and and I think the the difference is that in in the old you know the the, the physical world. All your community was in one place, right? And if you were someone, I grew up in Wisconsin, I was super interested in tech. There was literally no one around me that cared or was interested in that at all, right? And so I mm-hmm. had to leave, right? And, and and you hear this story a lot. What's interesting about the internet, and I think the future of people who do find really good community around them is instead of everything being integrated and you have to get your tech community and your real life community and your sports community, and you have to like luck out and like everyone's in the same town, and somehow <laughs> you figure it out. And and, and like that's a, that's pretty tough, right? What the internet makes possible is you can have multiple communities and you sit at the Venn diagram of sort of all of them. And I think one of the stupidest and most misguided things that's ever been said was by Mark Zuckerberg, where and I think he's backed off of this since then, but it was like a decade ago, it was like. No, you need to be your authentic self online. You need to be all yourself. No, that's ridiculous. We're not our authentic self in any scenario. In any or real no, life we're not our fully integrated right. self. Right. We could be I'm authentic in all my groups, but it's a different part of me in It's a all different those angle. Sure. Yeah. Right. Which I think is totally fine and totally healthy. Like, like, and it certainly has been fine and healthy for me, where, you know, this is where I'm an insane Bucks fan. This is where I you know have maniac, takes on yeah. like Apple and blogs or whatever. This is where I have I my group I comment about social issues, right? This is my group where we talk about we complain about Taiwan COVID restrictions. Like like there's different places for different parts. And I I, I think the this looking for one thing to meet all your needs. This is what my manager was exactly right about. Like you need to find meet your different needs in different places. Now, how do you go about doing that? it's tough, but I would definitely recommend get a real life group, like how, whatever, maybe it's just around your kids or sports teams or whatever, whatever it might be. Um, Mm -hmm. There's just something irreplaceable about being together sort of in person. Number two, if you are fortunate to develop a great group chat or whatever, you got to get together at least once a year, right? You, you, there has to be some aspect of sort of connection. And then number three, like trust is definitely super duper important. And, you know, we talked about, like, how do you grow a group chat, things along those lines. Uh, but I don't know. Like, how did we end up? Like, I think I think for me, NBA Twitter has actually been a huge area. That's how I met Duman, who I've worked with
0: now for years. It's difficult. I, honestly, like, I'm biased because I spent nearly 10 years as a sports writer and have loved sports my entire life. But, like, I use sports to relate to so many people that I have really meaningful relationships with that are still at their core founded on like our love of basketball. And like when things break down, we end up bullshitting about the NBA and then it's sort of like, Oh wow. Okay. It's great to hang out. And um sports is just a really easy hack if you happen to be an older guy. So I don't know much about other ways to establish community. I did want to include it though.
1: Yeah. No, I think sports is a great point. And this this gets at the integration point, and my rant before the break about letting politics infuse everything. Like, if you require the person you interact with to be completely "quote unquote" right according to your definition of right in every aspect of life, you're going to be a lonely, miserable person, right? Like, like the the certainly find your political group where you get together and you complain about your political opponents. The That's same stuff, fine. yeah. Find a different
0: group, right? Especially for the in-person stuff, right? Like I was gonna say, in-person, it's impossible. There just aren't that many fun people to hang out with who all think the same way. Like in any place in the entire world, it's just hard to like find five or six reliable people that you look forward to seeing. Who are also on the same page about every political issue or whatever it is that you're demanding conformity from. Right. Like, it, it just... it, it,
1: when I rant about this, this isn't my rant is not political. My rant is a very personal concern for people I see who have isolated themselves and are just completely miserable because they're letting things they can't control dictate the stuff that actually makes them content and happy or unhappy, right? Like at the end of the day, and, you know there's there is I think a, a a component to this where you know generally speaking the stereotype of guys you know like you, oh you went to hang out with your friend oh how's he doing with X Y C oh I don't know we just talked about sports the whole time like that that that's like the, the stereotypes tend to exist for a reason and there's an aspect where you know what. Hang out with someone and talking about, like, some random thing is, like, th- that's just... It's still good for you, though. It's so <laughs> like, good for you, right? No, it's, it's so good for you. It, like, it, it's it's hard to articulate. And in this world where everything has to be measured... Like it
0: seems borderline antisocial to, like, my if my wife was like, all right, so you guys just spent, like, three hours and all you talked about was the NBA. But that's still, like, a really healthy... Esteemable act and like it leaves me feeling better. Like, there's whatever the synapses are firing yep. based on like in person interaction, it's still really positive for my life.
1: Yeah, no, a- a- absolutely. And, and, and you think about it, the people that are pressuring you to everyone you associate with has to have the right number of ex-beliefs on, on every single axis. There's a nice way to circle back to that rant because it was not politically. It was, like, honestly, I just see, I, I see this in so many friends. And maybe this, is, again, is a bar about being old and the age. And I feel so satisfied by virtue of having a wide range. Like, I know people who believe all sorts of crazy stuff <laughs> across left say. to right, right? Up and yeah. down. And, and it, being able to meet people where they are is is such a better way to live and not because it's quote-unquote good or bad for society because it's good or bad it's good for you it's it's good to connect it's good to have people that you care about and just by virtue of because they're a person and you're not expecting anything of them beyond companionship and community
0: right it's a pro-humanity take at the end of all of it um Class and uh full. again yeah glass half full episode here and to answer daniel more specifically yeah thank you i was gonna say i was gonna say we I've, actually i did question. i felt bad because like we've been emphasizing community and this is like the toughest nut to crack i would just say if you make it a priority to establish an in-person community it may take six months it may take 12 months but just put yourself out there in some situations with people who could potentially be like part of that in-person community. And um, I think that's probably the best approach for something like this. Yeah.
1: I I mean, just speaking for myself personally, I had online communities on an ongoing basis for, for a long time. It was transformational for me personally to have an in-person community. Like that made more of a difference than almost sort of anything else. Cause there is something really real and tangible there and find like, what's, you know, you're you're uh, uh, you work in tech, live in a small market. Maybe there's some sort of like like some sort of hobbyist tech club or whatever it might be or or just I don't know I mean like obviously a lot of this tends to be uh you know, as I say, drinks at a bar, I'm not saying like there should be ways to interact outside of that. Sports is obviously.
0: Um, a thing, maybe it's your kid's sports, but if you make it a priority as if it's like an objective at your job and just take it seriously. And like once a month, go out and try to meet people in one form or another, eventually you will find the right sort of mix. Right. And, and, and this um, is,
1: it's definitely something that comp- that compounds over time. Right. Because once you have one or two trusted people, you will get introduced to one or two other trusted people, and then you like your, your network sort of expands. It's like a startup in some respects, it's really hard to go from zero to one, but once you get going, it becomes much easier.
0: There you go. Well, it's great to see you back in your home studio, Ben. My favorite Ben Thompson fact, uh, thus far, who knows what I'll learn in the future, is your. Your Soda Stream addiction and your your setup right there near your office. Um, That's right. Am I have my dedicated Soda Stream refrigerator. My favorite part about Ben generally is there's just no half measures in like any <laughs> aspect of his life. So he decides he likes Soda Stream and gets a Soda Stream specific fridge that is stocked. At all times, with is it six soda streams or is it 12?
1: No, so it, the, the this uh, refrigerator fits six bottles on the bottom. Then I have an extra several bottles on the side. So as you take one out, you always have to put one back in. <laughs> and then say. on the top, there's there's a couple of slots so I can have some sort of to go bottles uh, of, of like bottle water. If I'm, if I'm running out the door, I can grab them. Um, you don't want to take your soda stream with you. Also, don't do any of this flavor stuff. Then you have to clean the
0: bottle. Just keep it's all, it simple. Yeah, no, ah, just water. Wow. Just water. That's very important. <laughs> there you go. Sage advice from Ben Thompson. People always want to know how you work. Now they know it's all about the uh, soda this a, stream. This is a
1: long running sort of uh gag. Uh, that I think me and John Gruber have joked about uh where the, the way. The way a uh, a a blogger tells time is by what liquid they're drinking. So if it's coffee, <laughs> it must be morning. If it's sparkling water, it must be afternoon. If it's whiskey, it's it's nighttime, So
0: I'm grateful to sparkling water. It got me off of soda after like a 30 year addiction. So um, it's a, it's the most normy like basic thing I do is drink seltzer all day. Yeah, so but I'm right there with don't, you. Don't
1: buy all those cans. I'm telling you. you, you make your own. Actually, we 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 had um, uh, if you ever get a carbonated water faucet where it's actually like you have a big tech <laughs> oh, <interesting. wow. laughs> life-changing we I, I, we're, we've been debating about getting that installed here for ages
0: <laughs> uh, but yeah okay well that's when you'll know that sharp tech has truly made it we'll both have carbonated water faucets
1: there, there's a really bad intersection though between the sparkling water addiction and the getting old part uh just let's <laughs> don't want to get into the bathroom details but it did just occurs a little too frequently
0: so there you go all right well on that note um we are going to come back later in the week uh we had a bunch of good mailbag questions that we weren't able to hit on this episode again if you've got follow-ups to the amazon conversation We would love to hear from you, and um, I look forward to keeping it rolling. A fun bonus holiday episode here, Ben.
1: Yes, email at sharptech.fm. Don't forget about Sharp China. Uh, You and Bill actually got back in the saddle a week early. You can ask Mm. questions there, email at sharpchina.fm, And, yeah, I'll look forward to talking to you later this week. All right.